Hello, college football fans, and welcome to episode 113 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined, as always, by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, Husker football fans and college football fans. Hello, hello, If there are any Husker fans left. (laughs) Oh, they're out there. They're out there. Don't worry. (laughs) I know. All right. So uh, from the defeated tone in Dad's voice there, you can probably tell what the uh, result of the Nebraska-Minnesota game was. Uh, But we'll be talking about that particular game as well as the uh, big upsets and games from Week 7 of college football, talking about what's coming up in Week 8. Um, Nebraska actually has a bye finally, uh, after eight games in a row. So, uh, we will not have a Nebraska game to talk about next week, but there are some interesting things on the national side to talk about. But before we get into all of that, uh, we're going to go ahead, stick to our tradition and crack our beverages. What do you have today, dad? Well, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going light beer now. Um, so, uh, I'm going with a Coors Light, uh, just traditional, good old, you know, it's the water beer, right? The old Colorado spring water. <laughs> there we go. All right. And what are you drinking today? Same as usual, the Japanese Sapporo beer. My God. Okay. <laughs> you, you keep Good say- stuff. You keep saying that. It's the same six pack. I've, I'm holding myself back. I'm only drinking one beer a week with you, Dad. So you should feel proud. <laughs> You're special. <laughs> I am special. Okay, I'll take it that way then. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay. Right. You know, I'm trying to visualize and remember what that tasted like. It's been so long since I've had it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an alcohol guy, so I wouldn't be good at describing the flavor. Um, but it is good. I like it. And because I'm not a dark beer guy, so, you know, it's light enough for me, but probably not as light as your Coors Light. Right. Not today. Yeah. The Coors Light is, uh, is extra light. Yeah. So. All right. All righty. And one fun thing is that uh, I've been, as I mentioned on previous podcasts, I've been going back and uh, putting up some of the older podcasts on our new website, Anchor, so we can get the full uh, college football library up there, the college football throwdown. And uh, there were two things I had forgotten. Um, one was that we actually skipped an entire season of football. <laughs> you might remember that uh, uh, after the 2015 season, we skipped basically the 2016 season and just talked about the the national championship game uh, the, uh, the, where Clemson beat Alabama that year. Yes. Um, I think we were both just kind of busier that year, procrastinated a bit. Gosh, I don't remember that. (laughs) I didn't either, to be honest. Um, The other interesting thing was I was, uh, because I've been re-listening to some of the podcasts to remember what the titles should be and all that sort of stuff. Um, And in that one about that, uh, the 2017 National Championship game for the 2016 season where Clemson beat Alabama, you actually specifically talked about the uh, the pick plays that Clemson was doing and how that was becoming more of a trend in college football. And you weren't such a fan of it. And you were wondering how, you know, refs would call that in the future. And that's come up a couple times in this season with us uh, running our own pick plays sometimes successfully sometimes more clumsily so i thought that was interesting yes exactly well and that's the thing is that see i think to some extent the refs and defenses have caught up with this spread offense that was the rage back then and and what what was what made scott frost you know the you know the uh, highly regarded offensive coordinator that he was and i think uh, one of one of our challenges with him is his commitment to his scheme exceeds that of his desire to win, uh, which I can get into a little later, but I, I, I'm now convinced that that's one of his critical issues that he needs to address if he's going to remain employed as the head football coach at Nebraska. Uh-huh. Well, speaking about that Minnesota game, uh, we gave our predictions as usual on last week's podcast. We were both going in with the well, we knew that Nebraska kind of had to win this game for our hopes of uh still getting to six wins and going bowling. So I predicted that we would win 35-17, and you predicted a closer score of 35-28. Um, 
And I guess you were closer in terms of the point spread, but the uh, winning team ended up being the opposite because Minnesota won 30 to 23 over Nebraska. Yeah. And let's, let, let's not forget the, uh, you know, first and goal from the, you know, three yard line that we were unable to convert. I mean, it's, oh. Well, it wasn't quite that. It was first and like, first and goal well, at like we, the. We had, two, the, we had two chances inside the three. Right. Yes, that is true. Because, uh, yeah, I remember the first down play was like a solid play that got us from, you know, the eight to the three or the two, you know. So that's like a solid, right, right. you know. Yep. Solid accomplishment right, for a still. goal line thing. But, yeah, we'll we'll get into that because this is one of those games where when you look at the stats, you know, they were the teams that had uh, two turnovers. We actually had none. Um and, you know, we were pretty even uh, across the board on stats. You know, they had 22 first downs. We had 19. Um, we had 241 passing yards. They had 214. We were 136 on rushing. They were 182. Uh, both teams had three penalties for 25 yards. So not a particularly uh, penalized game. Similar number of sacks, two to one. Um, the, the big stat that does stand out is time of possession where they had 38 minutes to our 22, which is obviously Minnesota style with that running focused, uh, game well, plan of theirs. And, and it's what you do when you're trying to, uh, neutralize a team that has superior talent to you. You're trying to possess the ball and keep the ball away from their talent and, uh, classic PJ flex style. He did a great job of preparing his team to play a high school game and beating Scott Frost for the third time uh, with that style. Mm -hmm. Very true. Well, because we knew this was a, a dangerous game that we had to be paying attention to because Minnesota had a bye week coming into this game. It's at home. Right. Meanwhile, we were just coming off of a difficult loss and having no bye weeks. This was our eighth game in a row. Um, and we talked about that yep. on the previous podcast as a, as a worry, worry point. Um, but I was hopeful but, but, that but here, here's the thing as a, as a, as a, coach, you know, you knew that I knew that. Are you telling me you don't think Scott Frost knew that? And if he knows that his team has a high risk of being flat, what do you do during the week of preparation to make sure that doesn't happen? You emphasize the shit out of that, right? And you demand it. If you're, if you're not seeing it from your team, then on the first practice of the week after the Michigan game, if you're not seeing that fire and that flame, man, you stoke that flame. And you make life miserable for that team if they're going to lay down, okay? You demand that they don't do that, right? And you get them fired back up. That's what you do as a head coach. That's what you're paid $5 million to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this OG, it was the eighth game uh, in a row. We were flat is bullshit and is representative of not being a good coach. Okay. You might be great X's and O's. You might be a great offensive coordinator. You know, he might, he might go on after he gets fired from Nebraska and uh, end up landing as an offensive coordinator somewhere and reemerge as a great coach, but, but probably as an offensive coordinator because he clearly does not understand how to manage a team and get them ready to play football every week. Okay. You can't use the raw, raw cheer, th cheer, cheer thing every week. And you have to be stable. And he's good at being stable. But then you have to recognize when the week requires you to rise up and demand it of your team when they're, when the leaders aren't doing it. Okay. Or you yell at your leaders and tell them they better get their shit together. But we didn't. We didn't do any of that. And then the coaches and the players both admit after the game, yeah, we didn't have any energy before the game. Right. You know, that came out in the press conference. That's the kind of crap that I, that would make me want to fire that son of a bitch. Because that's stupid <laughs> high school bullshit. Okay. Man, you, you weren't getting what you said you were you were fired up this week. <laughs> um, well, I, 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 I didn't even rewatch the game, Alex. I don't think I ever will because it, that game makes me so damn mad. Okay. Because that that game in a nutshell is why Scott Frost will not be successful if he does not change his ways. Okay, and if someone doesn't slap him upside the head, and 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 I don't know who that person would be, okay, maybe it needs to be me. Maybe I'm the guy that needs to call him and say, "What the hell's wrong with you, idiot? You got everything. 
You got everything you need and you keep fucking it up. Okay. That's what's bottom line. Pardon my French. <laughs> That's all right. Um, this definitely was a, a frustrating game. Um, but, and I do put definitely a good chunk of the blame on uh, Scott and the coaches for, like you say, you know, not getting the team prepared. You know, it, it's weird. It's tricky thinking about the psychology of it with Scott because he came into a, a UCF team, right, that had zero wins the previous season. He came in his first season and they did better. You know, I think they got, what, five, six wins. And then the next season they went undefeated, you know, had this great year. And that's what got him all of that acclaim. Um so I, I feel like, you know, everyone looked at that and thought, oh, he, he's clearly a, a great head coach. Look how he turned this team around so much in just two years. Um, but that was against much weaker competition, both in terms of talent and uh, coaching levels and physicality and all that. And I think he hadn't had to go up against that. Well, what do you do when your team does run into a brick wall, you know, and you need to be the one to kind of sort this out midseason, you know? Because right. sure, that first season he only got six wins or whatever, but compared to zero wins, six wins was great. So even though it was probably disappointing for him, he could still look at all, a lot of positives for the improvement of the team. Um, right. And it feels like he hasn't been able to figure that out here at Nebraska, uh, unfortunately. Even though I would say, you know, we talked about it on previous podcasts, and in a lot of ways we can see where the team has improved you know, over, say, last oh, yeah. year, you know, we, we, we've we got all this returning talent, you know, and some of our younger guys have stepped up to the plate to uh, play when they're asked to. Um, and we've been more physical. The defense, generally speaking, has been able to adapt to a lot of teams and keep games more low, low scoring. We haven't been like blown out and totally embarrassed by anybody, you know, like we were in some of the Mike Riley or Bo Pelini years. Right. But we just lose we, we lose all these close games and it seems like we play to the level of our competition, right? How can you play a close game against, you know, Michigan, Michigan State, Oklahoma, you know, and then go play against an, a Minnesota or an Illinois and lose by the same score that you lost to Michigan to, you know? Right, right. Well, and the, and the answer is all that, that other team, this lesser team that you're talking about, we didn't necessarily play down to their level. What we did was we allowed them to dictate the game because they had two weeks to prepare and they threw new stuff at us and we were unable to adjust. Okay. And it was, but the thing is, is the new stuff wasn't really new stuff. If, if he had looked at recent history of PJ Fleck and what he likes to do and what the strength of his team was, you could have predicted with a 90% probability that whatever he threw at you was going to be something like what he did. Okay. He bulked up uh, and, and created a, a, a six- and seven-man offensive line, sometimes subbing out uh, a tight end for an, uh, an extra offensive lineman. Okay, He just beefed it up and dared us to match him um, because we knew we had a good defensive line, and every game up until now, our defensive line has been able to play fairly neutral against some of the best teams you know, out there, right? So we're thinking we're good to go, but we weren't. We weren't, Alex. Because they put extra guys in there, big guys. So you have to be prepared for that. And the fact that he wasn't prepared for that is just flat out unacceptable. Okay? That's the kind of adjustment shit that, that he just doesn't seem to think about or do. If he, if he thought about it and then didn't act on it, that's his fault. If he didn't think about it, that's his fault. So there's just no escaping it. it this is on Scott. And, and, and their inability to adjust. Frankly, uh, Minnesota made enough mistakes to let us back in it. We should have won that game after, after the shitty start. And they line up and they smashed us in the mouth for most of the first half. And then in the second half, they kind of went away from it. And they went, they went to their, their regular offense, the offense they've been running the rest of the year. And we were able to shut that down and neutralize it for the most part. They didn't score a touchdown until that final, final score. We, we'd held them yep. the whole half. Mm -hmm. So, so the fact is, is that they played into our hands, but we still couldn't take advantage of it. Okay. We still couldn't do it because then when we did pr get presented an opportunity, even after the ill-prepared way that we, uh, obviously went through the week of practice, we still had enough talent that we damn near pulled it off. Okay. But again, because, uh, uh we have a quarterback who there's a gene that
a competitive athlete has, and, and certain athletes have this gene that allows them to rise to the occasion. We've talked about this before with Adrian. And then there's others that find a way to fail, to, to make the wrong decision time and time again, and they're just not ch champions. They're great athletes. They're just not champions. And, and, uh, and uh, Adrian Martinez is a guy who's a great athlete. He's an incredible talent, but he's not a winner. He's not a champion. And, and after all of the data that we now have, it's pretty clear he's not going to be. So I, I'm now convinced that it might be in his best interest to let uh, the second team guy try um, for a little while and see if he makes faster decisions. Because remember, Adrian started playing better after he was benched uh, last year for McCaffrey. And then when McCaffrey wasn't able to do it, we, had, we put Adrian back in. Adrian played with a little bit more headiness and a little bit more intelligence. Maybe we need to, to, to do this again. Maybe we need to let uh, Smothers start next game and let Adrian stand on the sidelines and watch and realize that, Adrian, the, the results, it doesn't matter that your stats are good. The results are unacceptable. And we got to see if what we got going down the road here in, uh, for future years because you aren't the answer. Well, because you aren't making the right decisions at the absolute most critical time. You're the one that's sitting in there and standing in that damn pocket for too long. You know, quick thinker, quick twitch, quick thinker. Right. Nope, he ain't that. Right. Um, you, I have a couple thoughts based on what you were saying. And one of them was actually an interesting comparison. I've uh, heard, listen to some of these uh, boxing podcasts talking about, I don't know if you ended up watching that Wilder Fury fight um, that I sent to you. Um, but what's funny was that, that there was a different heavyweight fight just a couple weeks before with Anthony Joshua versus Alexander Usyk. And Joshua's like was the belt holder, this huge physical specimen, very handsome. So, you know, he's very popular. Um, he's from Britain, you know, so they love him over there. And then Usyk's like this Russian guy who was like a cruiserweight and moved his way up to heavyweight, you know, so he's smaller guy, but very technical boxer, very fast and all that sorts of stuff. And I watched that uh, match the two had, and what a lot of people were saying was it, it felt like even though Joshua was the bigger guy, the more athletic guy, um, he didn't have that heart. You know, he got tagged with some sharp jabs by Usyk like right away, and it seemed to kind of surprise him and wake him up. And Joshua did win a few rounds, you know, in the middle of the fight, he started to make a comeback, but then Usyk kind of, you know, returned even better than before and Joshua really couldn't do anything. And even at the end when it reached 12 rounds, no one had been knocked out. So it goes to the judges for points. And usually the fighters are supposed to, you know, hold their fists up, right. Pretend like, you know, they're excited that they, uh, you know, pretend that they won, you know, support their claim. But, Joshua just in the previous round had been smacked by Usyk pretty good. You know, almost looked like he was going to get knocked out and he was just sitting there in his corner with his head down, you know, not, uh, right. not he even knew he had lost. He knew he had lost. And it kind of felt like, you know, instead of kind of going for the risky position of trying to knock Usyk out, you know, he just kind of played it safe and made sure he didn't get knocked out and lost on points and like, all right, I'll get him back in the rematch. Compare that to that Wilder Fury fight, where even though Wilder was getting outclassed by Fury for the majority of the fight, he never gave up and he managed to tag Tyson with some surprise right hands, bring him down twice, you know, make the fight really interesting there for a while. Um, so it was just a comparison of like great athleticism, but doesn't have the heart, you know, like you say, that like drive that I have to win no matter what, you know, none of this, like I'll get him next time because I have a rematch clause kind of thing. Um, so I wonder if it's, there's something, obviously there's no, none of that rematch stuff in, uh, in college football so much, but I wonder if it's somewhat of a similar mentality with Adrian and just that he has, you know, some of some of those like last minute defeats haven't been Adrian's fault, right? You know, because he gets sacked by somebody because his offensive line, you know, totally failed him and he gets blown up or whatever. Um, so, you know, some of those like close one score losses we've had aren't his fault, but some of them definitely are, you know, and that that mental this, this, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, but throughout this this past game, he continued to demonstrate that he did not have an internal clock, including the, the safety, okay? You know, uh -huh. you, you got to understand where you are on the field. 
You need to understand that under no circumstances do you go backwards when you're in that situation. No circumstance. If you have to, you dive to the left or the right and stay out of the end zone to uh, survive for another play. Okay. You definitely don't go backwards and then end up throwing it out of bounds, which is a guaranteed safety. Okay. It's like, how can you not know that when you're playing in your, effectively your fifth year, you're a, you're a fifth year guy and, and, and you're, uh, you're still making that kind of bonehead decision, that kind of mistake mentally. You, you're not into the game enough to understand your circumstance. And then, and then throughout the game, times where he just held the ball too long. If he tucks it and runs, we get some positive yardage, most likely. And if he can make one guy miss, which he's actually pretty good at, maybe we make more than that. Okay, But instead, he stands in there and lets them get to him. Now, they didn't necessarily sack him a lot. But they, they, they knocked down a ton of balls, right? Because he was throwing late. He was throwing sidearm because he couldn't get, get anybody. So get, get the hell out of there. Get the hell out of there and then throw on the run to your right because you're a right-handed quarterback. Right. Okay? Well, if you have to run to the left, you run. I, you I, don't throw if you're running left. I, I do totally agree with you on the safety. That was a boneheaded mistake by him because he needs to be aware that whatever that internal clock in your head is, it's got to be twice as fast when you're in that situation. Cause if you can't get somebody fast, you've got to go and avoid that safety at all costs. Exactly. Like you said, one factor that uh, may be playing into this. I don't know if you saw this. I saw this on the uh, Nebraska Reddit. And this was a post from a person saying football player in my English class said Martinez sprayed his ankle on Tuesday. So last Tuesday in practice. And there's a picture of him taking a uh, photo with a young girl, and you can see he's got tape on his left foot. Um, so sounds like that may have been part of the reason, at least, why he wasn't making the run for it in some of those situations like he normally would, because maybe he wasn't. Then put in your second string quarterback. Totally able to, but yes. Then then put in your second string quarterback, okay? It, I, I get it, okay? He's your starter. You start him at the beginning of the game. When things aren't going well, then you 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 have a quick – a, a quick hook on him if you know that he's playing injured and let him get some attention in the, uh, in the tent, you know, let him take that tape off, uh, uh, loosen up, you know, give him some icy hot, get that ankle loosened up again, and then retape that sucker and have him go out there with a nice fresh tape on his foot. Okay. So he can feel confident or, or as confident as possible again. And in the process of doing that, give the other quarterback a couple of series uh, in the game to um, to see what he can do, and if he's doing okay, maybe you keep keep um, Adrian on the sidelines and let let's just play it out. Because again, I, I I'm under no illusion that Smothers is better. Okay, I I don't feel that way, but he may be better at making the the decision on the play, and for better or worse, getting it out on time. Okay, or tucking it and running. All right. But in either case, Smothers is a very athletic guy, much like Adrian. Not as strong or as big, but he's athletic, in fact, faster. So maybe Smothers is the guy that breaks, breaks free on a few runs. Again, uh, lack of focus on just getting first downs. You know, big play after big play, chunk plays is all we got, right? Couldn't drive the football because we weren't focused on that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so, right. again, uh, it, it all circles back around to Scott Frost. And so now here's the deal. I want to give him time to learn these things because they are, they are teachable things for a coach. A coach can figure this out. He's had and been surrounded by great coaches to teach him these things, and he hasn't gotten it figured out yet. I think we're at the point now where someone has to have the guts to be b- brutally blunt, honest with him and say, this is what you're doing wrong. If you start focusing on these five things, okay, Simple, basic stuff. Forget about the touchdowns. Just get the first downs, and the touchdowns are going to take care of themselves. Okay? Focus on the fundamentals. You're a head coach. Focus on your team and, and your team's mental approach and mental attitude uh, throughout the week of preparation and certainly on game day. Okay? And you need to be able to gauge what you need to provide them based on that. Instead of being Mr. Steady, who... You know what? Uh, again, I'm a big believer that the head coach has got to be that guy that inspires. But you know who the you know who needs to be the steady Eddie guys, the assistant coaches, defensive coordinator, 
Head coach, no. They're not the steady Eddie guys. They're the guys that have to inspire. Okay, that's the job of being at the top of the food chain. Okay? Now, uh, but... And Scott doesn't, Scott doesn't get that. But I'm curious, um, because probably Scott's biggest inspiration in that regard is his coach, Tom Osborne, who wasn't necessarily the guy to go out there and give some fiery speech to the team or something like that. He was more of, at least my impression, you would know better, but you know, my impression is that he was that kind of steady, calm, but a force that, you know, people really looked up to. And because of his years of success, you know, they built up by the time of the nineties, he had that respect that he commanded from the players. Right, exactly. And so that steadiness that we admired in the latter part of his career was absolutely a criticism and a legitimate one early in his career. Now, I would say he would have argued that he had plenty of fire and brimstone guys on his staff. Okay. He had a guy like Ron Brown for many years, okay, who was incredibly inspirational that he could utilize uh, in that role. So, Tom understood, okay, this is not one of my strengths, then I'm going to find somebody to play that role and to be that guy. So right. if Scott's not going to be that guy and he wants to be the steady Eddie guy and he's not going to be the inspirational guy, then, then he needs to figure out who on his offensive staff can be that guy for the offense, who on his defensive staff can be that guy. Okay. And who are they? And, and you better be nudging them. You better be letting them know on defense. We had Charlie McBride. He used to take the defensive lineman into the showers before every game and they would go absolute bonkers they'd be like ripping tiles off the walls they were so fired up when they were done with his little speeches legendary i'm telling you so tom had the guys that could do that stuff it just wasn't him so you are correct it doesn't have to be the head coach the head coach is responsible for it he can't rely on somebody else unless he specifically has assigned them that duty Mm -hmm. okay and and we don't have that guy Right. I don't I don't know of any dynamic guy on our offensive staff. You know, I I don't I don't know one of them. All nice men, I understand uh, from what I gather. But who's the inspirational guy? It's not the offensive line coach. You know, it's not the tight ends coach. Okay, not the running backs coach. So who is that guy? Mm -hmm. Well, it has to be Scott. Well, if you don't have the guy, you've got to do it as the head coach. Right. Yep. Step out of your comfort zone there a bit. Um, on the previous podcast, I had said that um, if based on Scott's performance earlier in the season, even with the frustrating losses with the close performances, you know, against like Michigan, Michigan State, Oklahoma, things like that. Uh, I said that if he was able to win against Minnesota and Purdue at the least, you know, the two teams that we should be able to beat and what's left of our schedule based on our talent and perception and all that stuff. Uh, then I think he would have done enough to definitely save his job for this year. Um, But now we're in a situation where he's lost that Minnesota game. Uh, We have this bye week, which is very much needed to kind of let our team recover here a bit. Um, But meanwhile, uh, the team that we're playing next, Purdue, had their best game of the season where they played against number two ranked Iowa at Iowa and beat them uh, 24 to (laughs) seven. And they're they're playing against Wisconsin this upcoming week uh, while we have our bye. Um, so now we're looking at a Purdue team that we're maybe looking at as a tougher opponent than we were the week before, plus Wisconsin, Ohio State, and Iowa left on our schedule. Uh, so it's quite reasonable that we end the season with three wins and we don't win any more games from here on out. And in that scenario, I think Scott is probably gone. Well, I, I would I would tend to agree with you that, that um, if he doesn't win against Purdue – uh, then he's probably going to be gone uh, unless he magically pulled rabbit out of the hat and, you know, beat Ohio state, uh, Iowa and Wisconsin, which clearly is not going to happen. So, um, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I think, I think there's going to be an assessment and they're going to say, listen, you know what? Uh, you, you, you brought in some talented guys, the, 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 the quality of the player, is not the issue. Talent really this year was not the issue. The issue was his coaching staff's ability to prepare their team to compete on Saturday and be effective and play at their at the level that they should be able to play at. And so 
I think uh, if Scott stays, he will stay with a lot of stipulations about staff changes that will be required um, and expectations about what, what next year looks like. Okay. That's the one scenario I can see where uh, uh, athletic director Al- Al- Alberts, Albers, Trev Albers, will give him another year. But I could also very easily see Trev making the decision to go ahead and say, nope, we, we got we to gotta make a change here. The problem now is you got the USC job open and now the LSU job open. So the two premier coaches that might find themselves available in this offseason coaching carousel are already going to be consumed by those two jobs because there's no way in hell that we're going to be able to compete and beat out LSU or USC for any of those coaches. That's true. That's true. So I I think that that would be the other reason why we give Scott one more year. Well, I I don't think that's the best reasoning because you obviously nobody knows what the future is going to bring. And there's always going to be, I would say, at least one team that will probably be more prestigious than us that has a you know coaching spot available. Um, now, right. two of that level, you're right, is maybe a little more unusual and will make this a little harder. Uh, the other thing I was reading uh, was that um, I believe the buyout for Scott's contract at this point is like $20 million, which with an athletic program that's been hit by COVID, just like every program has across the country, um, that's looking a little more pricey perhaps than uh than you would want absolutely if but you can't look at it uh you can't look at it from a fiscal standpoint when you're talking about the golden goose right that golden goose is the one that generates most of that revenue right Mm -hmm. and you can't afford to have that those walls tumble and crumble more by giving scott too much time right just because you're trying to lower that out frankly i'm hoping that scott will do if he ends up three and what would that be? Three and nine. nine. Three and nine. If he if he if he ends up three and nine, Scott will step forward himself and resign. He won't have to be fired. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hopeful is going to happen, and he's going to negotiate a diminished compensation, acknowledging that he did not he did not um, hold up his end of the bargain. And get, basically give Trev Albers the out. Mm-hmm. That's the right thing. That's what Orgeron did. Right. I mean, let's let's. I mean, I don't want to compare the LSU job to the Nebraska job because that's no longer a good comparison. Okay, um, LSU job is way better job than the Nebraska job because of the access to athletes. Yeah. Because of the fact that they won a national title just two years ago. I mean, they're a team that, um, you know, is on a different level than we have been for the last decade and a half. Okay. So yeah. let's acknowledge that up front. But still, that guy, he just beat Florida. Okay, he's three and four, and he's two years removed from a national title. And he's effectively waving the white flag and agreeing to terms to, to leave the program at the end of the year because people are unhappy with him. Mm-hmm. Okay? Well, Scott and, needs to do that. Right. Now, my understanding of the Ed Ogeron situation isn't uh, fully clear, but like you say, that he reached some sort of settlement with LSU that he's going to leave at the end of this season. Um, and there, there seems to be a combo of people upset with his on the field performance, but also off the field stuff. Cause apparently he like cheated on his wife, got divorced. And then there's been these, like all these girlfriends now, that have sounds been like taken some up. of the rumors around Scott. <laughs> well, I know uh, you, seriously. You, there, there's those rumors around Scott. Too. Well, right. I, but I know before the season started, when we talked to, briefly about that, you said that all you know, there's a lot of these crazy rumors flying around. You didn't seem to give them much credence, right? Um, I, and I agree with that. And I agree with that. They're mostly crazy rumors, but they might be in the case of Orgeron as well. That's my point. Well, and and the fact is, is that if he had had any kind of major like. Uh, NCAA violations or any uh, you know illegal activities, then the school would not have felt compelled to agree to pay him his full settlement. But they're paying him seventeen million dollars. And oh, by the way, one little more caveat in this comparison with LSU: recall that just just about four short years ago, the governor of the state of Louisiana was considering at the beginning of COVID of shutting down Louisiana State University 
and filing for bankruptcy. Right. Okay. Because that school is in such bad financial shape as an institution, both the academic and the athletic side. I mean, if it wasn't for the athletic side, they'd really be in trouble. But, but the, the point is, is that, is that they've spent all their money and then some. They're in major financial hot water, and yet they're agreeing to this $17 million buyout. And that's just for Ogeron. Now you talk about all of his assistants. So I guarantee you that total bill is going to approach $25 million, maybe 30 mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. Just as ours would. Yep. No, very true. It would definitely be get expensive. And from what I read, you know, the, the Odron stuff definitely sounds like it's much more substantial than uh than well, whatever Frost is rumored for. Um, but the fact remains that, you know, he won a national title just two years ago and then last year was five and five, which is, you know, definitely very disappointing for an LSU team coming off of that national championship. Uh, but in the, in a COVID year, you know, so he gets a little bit of slack there. Yeah. And like you say, he, they just had their biggest win of the year for sure against Florida. Right. So I, I just, I, I, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that I, I think what needs to happen if we do end up going three or four and whatever uh, the rest of the year, maybe we win one more game. Like, let's say we beat Purdue, but then we lose to Ohio State, Iowa, and Wisconsin in not so great fashion. Because I think if we lose those three games, at some point, the, the players will start to cash it in and uh, people will start contemplating their portal entry and where they're going to go next. And you're going to see a massive bloodletting uh, at the end of the season, which I think is going to happen to every football team that has a disappointing year and disappointing coach. And the, the, the general optimism for the future is not there. I think you're going to see kids bail in a big, big way. Okay. Not just at Nebraska, but in a lot of places, I think it'll be, it'll be more substantial at Nebraska because of the nature of the expectations at Nebraska. I mean, there's no school where the historic expectations are in greater disparity from where the current program is than Nebraska. Right. Okay. We are, we are the blue blood that has fallen the furthest at this point in the last 20 years by far. Mm-hmm. And so uh, people are going to jump that ship, man. They're going to, they're going to bail on it. And so you mark my words, that's what's going to happen unless Scott does the right thing. And at some point acknowledges it's official. I have failed in my effort to re- revitalize this program. I love Nebraska too much. I love the fans and the people of the state and this program too much to watch this continue to decline. I've clearly failed in my effort. Somebody else, I need to give way so somebody else can come and give it a go. And oh, by the way, you know, I'm going to encourage all my players to hang in there, stick it out, that they're very talented and that someone better than me is going to come and replace me and, and get you guys going in the right direction. You need to hang in there and uh, give him a chance, and that new coach will, will be the guy that will be able to take you and your talent and make them special. You know, I mean, you just got to eat your humble pie and admit it and move on. Well, and of course, you know, we're, we're being kind of uh, pessimistic here because of the frustrating loss to Minnesota. Um, but it is, of course, possible that, you know, he beats Purdue and is able to, you know, maybe loses to Ohio State, but surprises Wisconsin, you know, and then we're, what, at that point, it'd be like five and six. Five. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. If we, if we could win, if we could win at Purdue, and then, like you say, be competitive at Ohio State so we don't, we don't take a huge step back, and then we go off and play Wisconsin. Um, it's at Wisconsin, though. Right. So I just, I can't see us beating them there. Uh, but let's say we do, let's just wave the magic wand and say, we do that. Now we go into that final game against Iowa with a chance to get to six wins. You damn right. Then, then, then it would, then that, that game is a moratorium on whether or not Scott's the guy, you know, right. Well, find a way. I mean, I think if he gets us to that point, you know, then even if he loses to Iowa, he's done enough to secure his job for another year. Um, obviously, getting that win over Iowa yeah. to go to a bowl game would be great and would really, you know. Well, but that's what he really needs. Well, yeah. He, he needs six wins this year. He needs six wins to build momentum because I question whether he can still salvage the program three or four or five years from now if he doesn't get six wins this year. 
Right. See, my, my, my point is, is that six wins was the, was the low bar. We had to get six wins this year and frankly should have, yeah. we should already be, you know, sitting on five. Uh, you, you can't, you know, the Minnesota is a loss. Ironically, the two worst teams we played, Illinois and Minnesota, both are the, are the defeats that are true defeats. And the Michigan loss, the, the uh, uh, Michigan State loss, and the Oklahoma losses are losses that we should have won, mm-hmm. where I feel like we should have won. Right. Well, but um, now how we played the game. Now we, we've we've given uh, Scott and the coaches, you know, some grief here um, for like their game plan and uh, being unable to adapt, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to their credit, um, in the second half, after being down, um, uh, what were we? 21, 21 to nine, nine at halftime. Um, like you say, Minnesota kind of adjusts their offense in some ways that kind of played into our hands, but also, you know, the defense was definitely uh, making some more plays, getting those very important interceptions that we needed um, as well as yes. just slowing them down. Like you say, they didn't score any touchdowns until the breakaway touchdown right at the end of the game. Um, and then as well, you know, our offense found ways to get working. Uh, Austin Allen had 127 or 121 yards across the whole game. Um, and, you know, we were in a position to go up and be in the lead uh, if our players are able to actually execute. But I think the mistakes of three big, right. three players really ruined us there, which was obviously Adrian, which we've talked about. Then there's Yant, who on fourth and one at the goal line, us bringing in our big boy to, you know, get in there yeah. and score. And they stumble. And he, yeah, he trips on the most important play where he can't afford to do that. He trips. And to me, that's not Scott's fault. That's Yant's fault. You know, you, you just but, can't but, but do you that. Know what? that. No, that, no, no, that is, that is Scott's fault because you got a guy who you're putting in, in that situation who has had so few snaps because you were being stupid about his snaps earlier in the season. If he had that kind of talent and you cannot tell me that he still wasn't showing that even if it was just in flashes during practice. Again, this is where you got to look at player performance in games. Who's a game day? Who's a Saturday guy? And who's a practice player? Okay. And sometimes you got to skew stuff. Sometimes you got to skew snaps in favor of the guy that you believe has the ability to be that Saturday guy. Okay. Even if he's not there yet on uh, through the week. Uh, and so I, I blame the fact that their timing wasn't very good. They, you know, he, he effectively stumbled in part because he and, he and Adrian had a poor handoff. And it wasn't the first poor handoff they had on, on that day, okay? Uh, and so Yant wasn't in, in exactly the right spot. He needed to be six inches further away, okay? So he wasn't going to crowd Adrian, okay? Th- those are the kinds of things that repetition and concentration uh, allow you to avoid, Right, those well, kinds of mistakes. Sure, but in that Northwestern game, yep. he hadn't played much earlier in the season at all, and yet he came in and right. was able to execute. You know, so right, but that was that was against Northwestern. That I know was against an inferior opponent. Okay? I who, I know, who but Minnesota wasn't matching up. Minnesota's an inferior opponent too. So no, I, not at the not at the line of scrimmages. They weren't. They were a superior opponent. They had dominant offensive linemen. They had a one of the best defensive lines in the Big Ten, okay? What they were inferior at is why we weren't getting to our big-time wide receivers more, why we weren't willing to – I mean, our big player was our tight end. We never hardly got the ball until midway through the third quarter to, you know, Omar Manning or Betts, okay? We we didn't even get them involved, okay? We were unable to get them involved. Why? Why? With all the superior talent that we have – at the skill positions and defensively we had uh, they had one advantage over us they had a great offensive line everything else about their team why we didn't go man we played zone in that game and yes it ended up leading to getting two interceptions in the second half but we gave up so much in exchange for oh, that yeah. zone i mean we needed to go man up and dare them to throw the football okay and come at them and attack okay we didn't do that Especially, so, I don't know. Okay, since their QB showed that he couldn't really throw the deep ball, he underthrew the couple deep balls he did throw. Um, but you are right. correct; they were uh, twenty-one of twenty-five on passing in that game, with 
two of those incompletes being the interceptions. So really, right. there was just two incomplete passes amongst those 25, which is, uh, like you say, pretty right. frustrating. But getting back to my well, point, right. I, underst- I understand everything you're saying makes sense. But at the end of the day, for me, it still comes down to that's there's got to be some responsibility on the players it, in that moment when you know that how important this is that we nope. got to get this fourth and one to score seven points to go up in the lead you can't make that mistake in that moment and similarly then we have Connor Culp our field goal kicker who made a 50 yard field goal in this game yet somehow right. misses an extra point and then misses a 27 yard field goal that's right in the middle uh, that he right. easily should have had. Now, apparently he does have a hip injury, so I understand that plays into it a little bit, but it seems like more of it is mental with him, and Scott said as much in some of his interviews, I know. Um, so, Absolutely. you know, but once again, you know, Scott, after we didn't get that touchdown, we were still, our defense got a great stop. We got the ball with good field position. We were in position for a field goal to decrease their lead significantly. Uh, and then our guy yep. just misses an easy field goal. And, you know, that's, right. I mean, it's Scott's fault in the broader sense of like not getting a special teams guy and not having a backup to help out Culp or whatever. Yes. But at the end of the yep. day, that's that player's fault. He's a head case, you know? So there's got to yep. be some. But we're, but we're in year four. I know. We're, year, we're in year four. But there's got to be, there's gotta be some issues. player responsibility because if those players executed yeah. just on those couple plays, we probably win the game. You know, that's how important so, those so mistakes here, were. Here's the reality. But here's the reality. The reality is you have a player like Culp. You should have in year four a backup kicker that's good enough, okay, to get you through if you've got a guy that's got the yips. Send him packing to the sidelines and say, hey, you're done until uh, this other guy proves he can't do it, okay? But we're going to put him in and you're done, okay? You need, you need to have enough depth that you can do that. Same thing with Adrian. There are times when Adrian should have been um, should have been uh, replaced by a second string quarterback so that he could think about that. Okay, so that's the problem when you don't have that kind of depth after four years of your own recruiting. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I still blame it on Scott. I mean, I I agree with you. I, you know, you got to. But again, it's it's on the coaches to hold the players accountable, and you do that through how you prepare them mentally and how you create the expectation uh, uh, of what they are required to do through practice and game preparation day, game day preparations. And in my opinion, Scott Frost has failed completely in preparing his team. I, I will not be shocked if we get our ass kicked by Purdue. Yeah. So well, that's a, go right right now. that's a good transition. That's a good transition off the Nebraska game <laughs> into uh into the week seven games of college football because the uh, biggest surprise was definitely uh, Purdue upsetting number two Iowa after they just got off their toughest game of the season against Penn State. Um, seems like they may have yep. fallen to some of the same trap that Nebraska did in terms of like not having their players be focused. Um, their offense was really inept uh, and it ended up being a score of 24 to seven with a couple of uh, bad interceptions thrown by their quarterback. Um, which I think well, you, you, you may recall, I have said from the very beginning that Iowa was, wasn't nearly as good as, as, as their ranking or their record would indicate because they were surviving on the backs of a very opportunistic defense and that their quarterback was average at best. Okay. And, and then at some point that was going to come back to bite them when they finally had a game where the, the, the turnovers didn't come for them early and they fell behind, they, they don't have a gear to, to pull themselves out of that. They don't have the explosiveness in their offensive system, um, uh, especially with that quarterback, to, to pull themselves out, right? Unless they're playing Nebraska. They do then because Nebraska f- gives them the opportunity. Uh, but, but Purdue didn't. Mm-hmm. Purdue got on them, and then they kept their foot on it. And I love it. I yep. love what Purdue did. Yep. And, and frankly, there's a lot of teams that should be able to do that to Iowa. Right. Well, and frankly, I think – Penn State was definitely capable of that if they themselves weren't making so many mistakes because they also had a number of turnovers, which, you know, you have to credit to Iowa's defense. Clearly, they're the real deal. Um, But Purdue also found a way, you know, to score on that team, you know, getting 24 points uh, on that kind of defense is a pretty... Uh, pretty good result, I'd say. Um, and of course, it's just it's just our luck, right? That uh, 
that the team we're playing next seems to be playing their best right before they play us pretty much. <laughs> I know that's, that's, that's classic uh, for, for us over the last, you know, two decades. It's yeah. been that way. And, I'm, I'm just tired of it. And we mentioned earlier the uh, LSU Florida game, which was, uh, I watched the highlights of that. And that was another one where it was pick central uh, Florida, the Florida quarterback threw four picks, uh, three of which which led to touchdowns. And one of which was right at the end of the game on like their last drive to maybe tie it. He threw a pick and the game was over. Um, and uh, LSU has a, a guy named uh, David Price uh, running back who had an amazing day. He was just, plowing through Florida, it seemed like. Um, but the fact that they were able to, Florida was able to fight back and make it 42-49, I think goes to show that if, uh, you know, they had been more disciplined with their offense, um, then they very well may have won that game. But uh, it was a, a good back-and-forth score fest and an impressive win for LSU on the eve of Ed O'Dron uh, leaving. Yes, I totally agree. And yes, it'll be interesting to see how Purdue responds to that game do they do they you know build on that or do they come falling back to earth a little bit when wisconsin takes them to the woodshed we'll see what happens this week in the purdue versus wisconsin game Uh, that will be the game that i am most interested in this weekend obviously yes we're we're definitely biased in our uh viewing opinions there but uh, i am definitely interested in that game as well uh because that uh, went over Iowa was at Iowa as well, which makes it extra impressive. And it, this Wisconsin game is exactly. at Purdue. So they do have that going for them. Um, the other game, one of the other games was uh, Georgia versus Kentucky, um, which we actually gave scores for in our previous podcast. Um, I predicted that Georgia would win 38 to seven. You predicted that they would win 42, 21, and it ended up being uh, 30 to 13. Uh, so a little closer than uh, any of us were expecting. If you look at the score, um, I looked at the highlights of the game though, and Kentucky's yeah. l- touchdown, their second touchdown came at the very end of the game when, you know, at, right. it was seven to 30 at that point, right. With, you know, two minutes to go. So the game was over. Uh, so it was a little bit of uh, yes. garbage time. Um, but one thing that did stand out to me, I'm not sure if, how much you watched the game, but um, right near the beginning, the Georgia quarterback got hit as he was throwing it and the ball tumbled forward. And there were like three Kentucky guys like right near it, but they all didn't go towards the ball because they assumed it was, you know, dead, right? Um, that he had passed it forward or whatever, but the ref didn't whistle anything. And so then they started going for it. But by that time, a Georgia guy had dove in there and actually got the ball. And turns out when they looked at the replay, uh, his hand wasn't really going forward when he got hit. the quarterback got hit and let go of the ball. So they called it a fumble recovered by Georgia. But I think that right there is going to be a textbook clip that coaches will show to every player, you know, in preseason or whatever to say, this is why you go for the ball no matter what on every play, because Kentucky easily would have gotten a turnover there if their players just reacted and they didn't. Abs- absolutely right, Alex. Yeah, it's it's you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, you, you sound like a coach. You sound like a coach <laughs> there, son. <laughs> Maybe I should be the assistant under Scott Frost. <laughs> That's right. There you go. Uh, well, I sure as hell could be. Yeah, you'd you'd be the uh, you'd be the passion guy. Scott could be the would be. even keel guy with you around. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, so th- that was early on in the game too, I think Georgia's first drive. So that would have been a real momentum swinger, but didn't go that way. And Georgia kind of scored early on. Um, so it was, you know, it was kind of Kentucky was playing up from behind pretty much the whole game. And Georgia's defense looked very impressive as you'd expect on special teams as well. They right. blocked an extra point and a field goal, um, that Kentucky went for. Um, so, mm. uh, Georgia continuing to look like the number one team in the nation. So their eventual game against Alabama is going to be a very interesting one, I think. Epic. Yes, absolutely. You know, and that's, uh, I mean, I've been slow to to embrace this, but I really do just need to stop being so passionate uh, about Nebraska's result and, and, and get back to just enjoying college football for college football and the other teams and other games 
But, you know, it was way easier to enjoy the other teams when your team was good. Right. You know, and, and you went, you, you, you finished most Saturdays with the pleasant feeling of a victory. Uh, when you're dealing with what we deal with now, it's, uh, it's a little harder. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> um, so looking ahead to week eight, um, actually, uh, LSU, as you were talking about earlier, they're playing its Ole Miss, um, which is their number 12 ranked team. So another kind of tough opponent for them. Um, so that will be an interesting test uh, for that. Well, uh, but here's, here's the thing. The one thing I would say about Ed Orgeron is pretty much everywhere he's been, he's been a player's coach. He's a mm-hmm. good old boy. You know, he's not, he's not a disciplinarian. So there's always been every place where he's coached. There have been off the field issues, no matter what. So I guarantee you his team will play with their hair on fire. Now, old, old miss has probably uh, a better system, right? Because they've got Kiffin and, uh, and he's, and, and they've been reasonably prolific and they have a decent defense this year as well. But it would not shock me if LSU puts on a hell of a performance. They may still lose, but they're going to put on a hell of a performance. Yeah, that's true because Ed Ogeron was the interim head coach at LSU, and then the players loved him so much that that, I feel like that was a factor in him getting hired in the first place. That's true. He also got the USC job the same way. He was the interim coach at USC. Players loved him so much that they ended up hiring him as the head coach and he lasted a couple of seasons and got fired. Uh, so he has a history. He, he was also the coach at Ole Miss. So he's going back to uh, one of his previous stops in this game as well. Yeah. I he just, got fired from there too. Obviously, <laughs> I just looked it up. It is at Ole Miss. So I do think that uh, yeah. they'll have the advantage there, but uh, that will definitely be interesting. Um, but for, it will be. For our predictions this week, we're going to go ahead and predict that Purdue-Wisconsin game we mentioned, as well as uh, USC-Notre Dame, um, usually uh, a classic game. Uh, of course, both teams yes. are a little bit um, down this year compared to where they want to be, um, but it is at Notre Dame. Um, so what is your feelings? Does USC, you think, have a chance there, or is Notre Dame just going to control it? No, USC definitely has a chance, in my opinion. Ironically, USC is playing better now um, with, um, you know, their interim head coach than they were uh, with Helton at the helm. And you, you know that that guy is a past Nebraska assistant, right? Oh. The guy who's the head coach at USC. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, who's, who's now the interim, interim coach at USC. Yep, he was, uh, he was on uh, um, uh, Riley's staff. Anyway, um, um what was I going to say? Uh, you're... I, I, I think uh, because it's at home, I'm going to I'm going to give the nod to Notre Dame. Although I will acknowledge that Cincinnati beat Notre Dame at Notre Dame. And if you'll recall, the thing that shocked me about that game was that the Cincinnati had an almost Nebraska-like crowd inside Notre Dame Stadium. So there's some something going on with Notre Dame's fan base where they have become apathetic which is never a good sign for a head football coach. But they still have some talent there at Notre, uh, Notre Dame. They just don't have a great quarterback, and that's their problem. Right. But the good news is neither, uh, right now USC's quarterback hasn't necessarily you know, blown up or anything either. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the nod to Notre Dame. Uh, but um, it's going to be another one of these kind of crazy ones, though I suspect that'll be like, uh, 35-31 Notre Dame. Okay, interesting. Uh, I'm going to go a little uh, different. I'm going to say that Notre Dame wins, and I don't think it will be uh, that close. Um, USC, you know, I know that they, they have done better, like you say, since uh, Helton got fired. Um, but I think that uh, Notre Dame is going to control that game, and maybe it'll be close in the first half, but they'll pull away by the second uh, so I'll say that uh, Notre Dame ends up winning, let's say, uh, 42-21. All right. And then wow. apparently our, both of our uh, most interested, uh, the game we're most interested in would, of course, be Purdue versus Wisconsin, our uh, opponent two weeks from now, um, playing at Purdue. It's at Purdue. Okay. Yes. Wow. Well, so that's a good thing for Purdue because now they get to come home 
to a hero's welcome, right? The energy in that stadium is going to be off the charts. True. Uh, since they just beat the number two team in the country and all of a sudden people are back on board. So that stadium is going to be absolutely rocking. To be, fi- to be frank, Wisconsin isn't too dissimilar from Iowa in that they have a great defense and an offense that struggled this year. Um, so if Purdue's defense is able to take advantage of that offensive weakness the same way against they did against Iowa, I could see a similar result happening. Yes, but but the thing is, is that Purdue had a career day uh, a benefit from a wide receiver that just just was unstoppable against Iowa, right? Ended up with like 255 yards or something like that, mm-hmm. receptions, yards, which is highly unusual. I think he had like 14 pass completions. So I don't think he's going to, I don't think you're going to get that again. Certainly not uh, against Wisconsin's defense. So I think Wisconsin's defense is opportunistic and ends up winning the football game. It's going to be close. Uh, and Purdue will get some points, but it's going to be more like 28-24 Wisconsin. Okay. Cool. I think I'll go uh, different here to, to keep it spicy in our predictions. And I'm going to say that uh, it'll be closer than that Iowa game was, but I think uh, Purdue may employ uh, similar tactics, and obviously Wisconsin will be looking at that uh, Purdue-Iowa game film closely. Um, but I think they could uh, surprise some people. And if they beat Wisconsin, I'm going to be really worried about them coming into our game. That's for sure. Uh, so it's not Well, the that's res- true. It's not the result I want, but I'm going to go ahead and predict that uh, Purdue does end up winning. And I'll say that it's uh, 24 Purdue to 17 Wisconsin. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one more caveat. I've already given my prediction for the Wisconsin-Purdue game, and I've said Wisconsin's going to win, but it's going to be close. There's also a part of me that thinks this is Wisconsin's breakout game, that L- Wisconsin's going to line up and play smash-mouth football and run the football effectively for the first time, uh, really, all season. And uh, their defense is going to be their defense. And uh, Purdue's going to look uh, kind of inept. And... Wisconsin runs away with it. I could see that scenario happening very easily. So I'm, I'm staying with my prediction that it's a close game, but a Wisconsin victory. But it would not shock me if Wisconsin just lines up, shortens the game, plays smash-mouth football, and then lets their defense win it for them. All right. Well, I've jotted that note down, so we'll see uh, which of those three predictions ends up being true. In, <laughs> in a week's time yeah. i know that's um, a little that's a little unfair i give two <laughs> predictions yeah well I'll, I'll give you a pass on this one um okay so next week we well, it won't be a nebraska game to talk about so we'll just be focusing on the national side of things definitely dive into that purdue wisconsin game as well as then giving our full preview of how we think that purdue game is going to go because i think this Wisconsin game, like you say, it being played at home with that energy of the crowd. Um, how do they respond after uh, such a surprise win for their program? Uh, and then right. where are we feeling on our team's uh, you know, status? I do feel better. You know, I, I definitely think Martinez will start in that game, uh, especially if this two-week break gives him time to heal that ankle injury. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, so I hope to see Adrian looking more fresh and determined um, going into that game. Uh, but maybe with the, you know, the knowledge in the back of his head that coach is going to be more willing to throw Smothers in there um, if he doesn't perform, you know, and like you say, you know, to kind of have that that chip on his shoulder that I need to go out there and prove myself, you know, well, that he's kind of shown sometimes in well, the past, you know. I, I, but it just frustrates me that we're even having that conversation. <laughs> Why would we be talking about that with a four-year starter? Okay, he should be so mature. He has so many snaps under his belt. Nothing su- should surprise him. He should be on top of the world with regard to all that, right? It just blows me away, frankly, that we're having that conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I do hear you there, but I mean... Unfortunately, that's kind of been a trend with Nebraska quarterbacks, right? With Taylor Martinez, Tommy True. Armstrong, and now Adrian Martinez, all uh, very talented players in their specific zones, but none of them complete quarterbacks and still making mental errors even in their senior year. Right, exactly. 
exactly. And because each of, each of them was effectively four year starters, we're now we're now on year twelve of this um, um, situation mm-hmm. uh, where we've not had a quarterback who's been able to rise above that and get to the point. I mean, no quarterback's ever going to never make mistakes. I totally get that. But when you consistently make the mistakes that Adrian's making, that are, in my opinion, high school mistakes, high, uh, mistakes that that a, a a seasoned quarterback should never make. Okay, they, they should it should be beyond them. Is uh, is the part that just drives me nuts. And uh, here's the other thing: is, is FYI, um, because of the number of practices we use uh, during our week zero preparation, we are limited on the number of practice days we can have on our bye weeks. Mm. And so uh, I think we're only practicing two days this week, if that. And one of those probably was just a uh, uh, a stretch and run through and review of the tape of last week's game. So the players are going to get pretty much a full week of rest. You know, they'll probably go, you know, go in and lift and stuff, but, but they won't have practice and the coaches were going to be out recruiting and uh, imagine how much better things would have been right now if they were out recruiting and their message was, listen, we've only lost to Oklahoma, Michigan state and Michigan, you know, two, uh, three top 10, top 15 teams. Um, we're, we're so close. But now they have to contend with the bookends of the Illinois game and the North and the uh, Minnesota game uh, that totally takes that message off the table for them. Mm-hmm. So it dramatically reduces Scott's ability to recruit. Yep. For the that, future. That's true. That's true. I mean, at, at some point you got to win or no one believes you. Right. And Scott hasn't done that. And, and, and again, I am now in um, 100% in the camp that it's on Scott. Yes, the players have failed, but this is on Scott. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Yes, definitely is going to be interesting. That is for sure. So if you all out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can reach out to us at huskerpeat13 at gmail.com. We always love hearing from the fans, answering any questions out on the air, things like that. You can also find us if you search for College Football Throwdown on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can leave us a rating or a review there. We always love hearing from the fans. Let us know what you think we can improve in the future. So thank you all out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me. And until next week, go Big Red. Go Big Red.